What is the thing that we can all do to really support the growth and development of this child and raise their own belief in what's possible? The educational landscape has shifted. The social mobility is very segregated. Therefore, politically, the same thing is happening. The decisions you make around that child's education are of paramount importance. What can we do that would make educators' lives better? How do we make change that you can see in the classroom? They don't have summers off. They're not on a break. Most of the time that kids are not in school, teachers are still working. To impact our urban public schools, to impact the life of a child. We really wanted to elevate the profile of our city as well as elevate the opportunities that exist in education here. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. Hey guys, it's Jen. Um, I'm so glad you joined us today because I have my really great friend, Sook, here. Hey, Sook. Is that how we're starting? Yeah. <laughs> how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm sitting here with my good friend, Sook, right across from me. And I'm going to let her do a little intro, but I just want to say first that I am so excited that we're sitting down to talk about this for lots of different reasons, but I will get into all of them after you say hello. Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to be here today. I feel like um, I should have had like an <laughs> intro music coming in and there's going to be some kind of live um, introduction, but I'm really excited to talk to you, Jen. I know. Well, we talk to each other all the time, but I'm excited that we're doing it here in front of these microphones, right? Like it's different. It feels funny. It's made easier with the wine, which is why I insist that everybody who comes in the store must drink wine with me or watch me drink wine. <laughs> um, so thank you, and thank you for the wine. And today I just was going to talk to you a little bit about the work that we've been doing together and some of the the themes in education that have bubbled to the surface. So why don't we start? I know I this is different from the outline, but let's start with how you and I got connected. Yeah. So I really clearly remember you and I were sitting <laughs> in a room with my previous boss, Joel Harris, mm -hmm. and your husband, Carlos mm -hmm. Maestas. And Carlos was going to work on some videos for us. We yep. were asking him to um, do some videos for two schools that we were working with. And he was like, you know, you guys need to meet my wife. She's an amazing <laughs> principal, um, works for SAISD, and has got some really cool ideas. And so that's how we first met. Yeah. And I, so he comes to me and he's like, Jen, you have to meet these people. I'm like, Carlos, I don't have time for this crap. I'm running a school. Like I'm not meeting anybody anywhere for anything. And then, I don't know, a little tiny bit of time went by and I actually decided that I was going to randomly stop being a full-time principal and work for Key Ideas as an education director because we were already crossing paths so much. So then I did go to a meeting. And I remember that I remember that day too because I was actually really nervous because it was out of my routine. Like the, I don't take meetings. People come to me because they're angry. Yeah. <laughs> like, like they're mad about whatever. Lunch was late and 12 kids didn't eat today or something, you know. So walking into a conference room with people who are not going to necessarily be talking about everyday school business stuff was actually really intimidating. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And Carlos will tell you that behind the scenes, I was pissed. Like just that I didn't feel comfortable and that also he was dragging me into a conversation that was pretty far developed. Like he had a strong relationship with everybody at the table. So I was like, oh, I have no idea how this is going to go. And then I sat down and we started talking and you were like, I just love your passion. <laughs> <laughs> just, 
I just love you. <laughs> but you said it after I talked, like, for a solid three minutes, which to me felt like really random, nervous banter. So when you said it, I was like, well, I just love you, too. <laughs> Let's figure this out. Um, and now Carlos makes fun of me because he always tells me that you told him that you liked Carlos, but you love me. <laughs> I do. I know. I love you, too. And, but, you know, thank you, Carlos, because you did yes. bring Jen Maestas into yes. my life. Shout so you are good Carlos. for something. <laughs> <laughs> you get the credit on this one. <laughs> Actually, you see, that's probably a very regular routine between Carlos and I. <laughs> like, he makes me do something I really don't want to do, and then I end up loving it. I love it. <laughs> I know. It's kind of annoying, but uh-huh. it's true. Well, I mean, you brought us a brilliant idea. That day is when you told us about San Antonio Leaders and Teachers, which is SALT. And yes. An organization that I get to be a proud board member of. So here we are, what, like almost a year and a half later. Mm-hmm. And Sook is one of our board members. She's officially a salty bee. Yes. <laughs> and so me and um, Jenny and Veronica were so excited that you decided to join our forces. Um, I do think girls run the world. For sure. Even if sometimes that's behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. I do believe that we're the people who are actually making shit happen. Absolutely. Regularly. So that's my belief system. <laughs> That well, red wine and coffee. <laughs> so that's how you and I connected. Yeah. But um, how did you end up in San Antonio and in the field of education? Because you didn't start out here and you didn't start out in education, right? Yeah. Yeah. So tell us. So I'm a first generation American. Uh, my family moved to the United States when I was three years old. I always like to say that I celebrated my birthday on an airplane. It wasn't exactly that way, but, you know, I felt yeah. like when you're three, everything is exactly. a birthday celebration. Yes. Um, so we moved here, and we actually immigrated to Maryland, where my dad's uncle lived. And so we lived— Where were you moving from? We were moving from Punjab, India. So my parents wanted a better life for us, and they thought, you know, let's go to the yeah. States. They'd heard about this American dream. And so that's what we did. We came chasing the American dream. So my dad was, uh, awesome. yeah, my dad was a furniture salesman, and he started off in flea markets. And I have been selling things since <laughs> I was a kid, which probably explains Woo in my Strengths yes, Finder. Exactly, Woo in competition. Uh, Shout out Kathy Kirsten for being the best Strengths Coach hey, ever. Kathy. <laughs> um, so yeah, we were in the flea markets, and we just kind of hustled and made it work. We, you know, yeah. we uh, didn't really have much growing up, and so we turned to education, and I loved it. I was a reader. I always, I remember I would get yelled at because in India, you shouldn't be reading at night. And, but you know, we have electricity here. So yeah. my grandma wouldn't like it when I was reading at night. Cause she's like, your eyes will go bad. I'm like, but grandma, we have lights here. Um, <laughs> but I was always in trouble for staying up late reading. So then, uh, but you know, as a first generation American, your parents want you yeah. to be a professional. So I grew up thinking I actually wanted to help support people that had been – their rights had been fringed on. So I thought I was going to do civil rights work. I went to – I got into Rice, blessed, and loved it, had a great experience. Awesome. And, yeah, and so I did research on civil rights and human rights. And I got this amazing fellowship to go abroad and, and learn about human rights genocides that had occurred across the world. So I went to Chile and worked with the Mapuche group there. I went to Rwanda and worked with the Hutus and Tutsis there. And then I worked in India and did some research research on the sick genocide that happened in the 80s. And, and how what long I, were you gone? I was gone for a year after I graduated okay. college. And it was hard. I bet. 
it was depressing. <laughs> it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had this very clear incident of I was leaving Africa to go to my next country and I had like five dollars uh, left and I gave it to a kid who came up to my door asking for money. And there was two kids there. And I told the kid, I'll give this to you if you share. But I only had one coin. Mm -hmm. So I gave it to him and the kid just ran away laughing. And I thought, of course, like he's not been educated that, you know, sh that's not something that he is going to ever he's do. He's in survival He's mode. in survival mode. Yeah. But that's when I really thought, okay, I need to work on figuring out how to way to support people whose rights have been infringed upon before mm -hmm. they get to human rights violations. So I really wanted to change yeah. the direction of my work and shift it over to education. And so I came back and I didn't apply for law school. I ended up applying for Teach for America. And what did I, your parents say? Uh, they were like, what? And so I convinced <laughs> them by just saying that, hey, I'm going to do this two thing for two years and I'll make my applications to law school look really good. I found mm -hmm. all these great people that had gone through Teach for America. And I was like, look, nice. look at how successful they've been. And they started off doing two years of teaching. So um, it, 10 years later, they're still asking me when I'm going to go get my law degree. <laughs> Fair to say that I'm not going. Uh, but so, yeah, I came, I got into Teach for America, thankfully, and I got placed in the Valley. Um, and so I got placed in RGV, but I only stayed there for a brief stint because they, um, there's a lot of bureaucracy down there mm. and they gave my position away after they had offered it no to me. No way. Yep. So then I got transferred. After you had already moved? Uh-huh. I was moved there. I had been offered a position uh, to teach sixth grade reading. And then they said, oh, we've actually given it to somebody else. Oh, my God. So I got transferred up to Houston where I worked at HISD. And that's where I spent most of my education career. I was there yeah. for seven years. And I taught middle school English and middle school math. And then I was a— You are a brave soul. <laughs> <laughs> they say you have to be crazy to teach middle you, school, for right? For sure. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, and I that's when I really realized that I was lucky to have made it out of the education system, that even though we grew up with not very much, that I got lucky and not yeah. we shouldn't have to rely on luck to be able to make it. And not all kids can bootstrap and get out. And so yeah. I wanted to create a more equitable system. And so as I was getting my MBA at Rice through this amazing program, which I hope I'm sending positive energy in the world that <laughs> someone brings it back. Yes. But the Rice Educational Entrepreneurship Program was the best professional development I've ever got in my life. And it trains school leaders to think more like CEOs. That's and cool. so, yeah. So then I use those skills. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm, and it no longer exists. I know they lost funding, which really sucks. But so I use those skills to become a school leader. And that's when I truly realized how inequitable the system is and how we're not really supporting our teachers or our school leaders mm -hmm. to be able to make the decisions they need to make. So then I found – I actually – how I moved to San Antonio was I went to Cuba. And so I went to Cuba one year because I love to travel. And I had gone with a friend who went to business school with me. And he mm -hmm. knew all these people in San Antonio because he had moved. And so we um, went and he said, hey, you should come to San Antonio. There's lots of great stuff happening in education. You'll really love it. And I – thought, okay, well, if you see any opportunities that come my way. And so he yeah. sent me the job at CEP and nice. him and between uh, my two friends, Doug Dawson and Seth Rao, <laughs> three months later, I was in San Antonio. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. How long have you been here now? So it's been almost three years since I've been here. Nice. Yeah. And You're I'll never right. remember, I'll never forget uh, Joel Harris, who was interviewing me for the role, uh, convinced me to come to San Antonio because he told me he was running. He took our first interview call running and he was like, <laughs> I'm running through nature. There's trees and there's water. And I'm like, what? There's no trees and water in San Antonio. There's oh, lots. there are. There's lots. Yep. Cool. Yeah. 
That was a long-winded answer to your question. No, I loved it because I learned a bunch of stuff I didn't already know. That's crazy. I learned something every day from you. Mm -hmm. Your title at CEP is what? My title at CEP is Senior Director of Seat Investments. So I fund furniture. So like when I heard that the first time, I was like, what the hell does that mean? Like the Director of Seats? I mean... When I was the assistant principal, I knew my job was butts, budgets, and books. (laughs) I didn't know that existed anywhere outside of like. Well, I told you my parents sold furniture, so I I just following the family career. (laughs) So tell everyone what what seats means in this context, in our context. Yeah. So CEP's goal is to create groundbreaking public schools for all students in San Antonio and specifically the most educationally underserved inside the urban core. And so my role specifically with the organization is to support schools. So I truly believe schools are the unit for change. And so we do everything we can to help give them the resources they need to be really successful. So some of the programs that we run under the seats bucket includes a school incubator that helps uh, entrepreneurial school leaders launch really great innovative school models for our kids, which is what Jen helps me on. So like when I first met, when I first met Joel and I first met Zook and they started asking me if I would consider helping with some of the work that they were doing, I really admittedly did not understand fully what incubation meant when it came to school leaders. But over the last year, I would say I'm thoroughly, number one, impressed, but also intrigued with the idea that somebody could step away from campus life and think about what education should look like and think about like from a lot of different aspects, not just in terms of instruction, but of in terms of space, in terms of hiring the right people um, and then the hiring, like the organization chart. So staffing models. I spent 17 years in a system that I, I am very committed to. Like I love, I am not ashamed of the work I did in, in the system that I spent my career in. I also appreciate that I did not, I didn't push enough on hiring. I didn't, it just, it wasn't on my radar. I didn't, and I'd never had the opportunity to design a space. I mean, limited opportunities to actually design a space um, because you inherit a building. Like you go where the building exists. That is your school. A lot of times in our neighborhoods, that's always been the school. So a lot of the schools in San Antonio have been around in in our urban core. I mean, they've been around 100 plus years, like literally 100 plus years. And through those 100 years, obviously, the buildings have evolved, but they all kind of have a standard format. Like this is what school looks like. And you don't really I've never really taken the time to think through like this building actually function in a way that supports the things I'm trying to accomplish Same with hiring. I mean, like, typically you ascend through the ranks of teachers and and teacher leadership to an administrative position. And then you go to a school that's already established and you are walking into a staff and you're walking into a student body. Even then, it's not total creation. So I've said a lot of times in the last year and a half, I never would have considered myself a creative I consider my husband a creative, but now having spent a year outside of an actual school building, I think I'm realizing actually we are super creative 
We're making all kinds of innovative decisions on the fly because we have to make do with what we have. But also in an incubating space, you can make those decisions and be like, you can think of anything and test it and see if that would work. So anyway, that was a long tangent, but I didn't understand what incubation meant. Yeah. So you know what's interesting is if you look at our any other professional industry in this country, if you look at hospitals, for example, surgeons are no longer using the same tools or methods that they used 100 years ago on patients today. Right. It's thank drastic. God. Yeah, yeah. Thank gosh. <laughs> it's like drastically changed. Yet if you look at the way schools are structured, it is starkingly similar to how things were done Mm -hmm. 60 years ago when what was required of kids, what was required of adults was completely different. And yet we're not doing anything to change the models that we're offering for our students. And the reason is fast enough. And not fast enough. Right. Thank you. Not fast enough. And honestly, the reason is because we both were with school leaders. And you're right. What we're focused on is putting out fires, making sure kids are learning to read and graduating with the credits they need to to go on to college. We're not thinking about what is what is the space functioning as? Is this the right space that we need to be able to educate Mm -hmm. kids or the model that we're offering? And so our goal is to create model diversity for students in the urban core. And we know that the way to do that is by pulling school leaders out and giving them the time, space, resources to go learn from folks around the country that are doing it really well. So our incubation model has four components. The first is community co-design, right? Oftentimes we've seen schools launched by both traditional public schools and charter schools just with the idea of the leader in mind and then conducted for the community. Very rarely do we actually ask parents and community stakeholders, what do you want for your kids and how can we create a school that's going to best serve you? So that's the first foremost premise of the model. So Our fellows are required to have certain numbers of community meetings every month, Mm -hmm. and they're required to build a community design team. And then they go out and say, okay, what is our school model going to be, and how can we mesh what the community is saying with what I am passionate about? Because the second thing we know is that leaders have to be incredibly passionate about the work that they're doing because a lot of the work relies on them. Mm -hmm. The second part of the model for incubation is helping instructional leaders getting really strong on finance and operations. So some of the things that you mentioned that we don't push back on is because as leaders, we know instruction. We rose through the ranks by being a really great teacher, by being a really great Mm -hmm. coach. We didn't really rise rise through the ranks because we knew how to manage a budget (laughs) or like knew which facility is going to be served best for our kids. But we want to provide those resources for the leader because Mm -hmm. those decisions can make a really big impact on student learning. So we need to help support leaders to be able to get acquainted with that. And the third thing we focus on is governance. So we do believe that to run a long-term sustainable school, you need to have a governing board that will be there focused just on your school and help you be strong, focused on data. So we Mm -hmm. help you build a nonprofit board that will be focused just on your school. And then the last thing we do for incubation is help you actually get authorized. So someone, whether it's a traditional school district or the state, needs to authorize you to say, yes, this model is viable. You've done the right diligence and it's a good model that the community wants. So we will let you run your school. So those are the four components that we work on. Yeah. So and you've been working on this now. This is going to be the third cycle, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so we're entering our third cycle of recruitment, which is crazy to think that this program has been around for that long. It is crazy because I didn't I, – I had, like, literally no idea that this was happening. Mm-hmm. And I I would never pride myself on being in the know 
because I actually think I'm kind of ignorant on a lot By of things. By the way, I'm talking to Miss Education, <laughs> saying she's not in the know. I, I would never pride myself on being in the know. There are big things that I miss. And a lot of what I felt like I missed out on was because I was really working out on what was right in front of me. I didn't, I didn't invest a lot of time elsewhere. It was like when I was at work, it was about work. And when I'm at home, it's about my kids and my husband and my dog and my cat, of course. Um, so I had literally no idea that this was even, not that it was happening in San Antonio, that it was happening, period, like mm-hmm. across the nation. Because this is not an idea that was born in San Antonio. No. So I actually, when I first th- said that, there, so the reason why I actually created the incubation program, because I tried to apply for a school and I failed. Um, <laughs> so I was running a school while I was in HISD and I thought I really wanted to bring blended learning to Texas. It had There's not a lot of school models that mm-hmm. offer fully incorporated blended learning at that point, which was yeah. six years ago. Now there's a lot of great folks like Raise yeah. Your Hand Texas yeah. does this entire program on I'm blended so learning. I'm so excited. I'm going to go to that training next week. Yeah. I'm super excited about it. I can't it. wait to hear what mm-hmm. you learn. And so I wanted to bring this model kind of like Summit Public Schools to, to Texas. And I tried to apply for this school, and I was working with my one of my partners, Doug, and we failed because we were both running full-time jobs. I was running a school. Mm-hmm. You can't actually do the work of developing and designing a school model while you're running another one or having – Well, because the there are actually job. a lot of people who are paying close attention to what new schools should look like. Yeah. And they are the people who are going to authorize you. Which I also feel is a misconception, or at least one that I had was that if you applied for a charter, you got the charter, right? Yeah. Having now gone through a year of this process with CEP, but also sitting on the board of the gathering place, I recognize that it's actually harder than people would assume. The process and the application itself are monstrous. It's huge. It's a 300-page application to the state of Texas. Texas is nationally the hardest state to get authorized in because it's such a rigorous process. Like, no longer are the days where you can just submit an application and, and get and a get char- charter, right? So we are trying to make sure we're doing right by kids. At least the state is. So I thought, okay, if I really feel like this is a gap, because there's no one in Texas right now that had been doing an incubator, so if this is a gap, where can we learn from that who is doing it around the country that's doing it well? So I went and visited all of the major incubators around the country. I got to go to New Orleans and visit with 4.0 schools. I got to go to Denver and visit with Moonshot. I got to go to Indianapolis and visit with MindTrust and many others and basically took all of the things that they were doing and said, all right, these are the best practices that I see that are successful. One, we've got to start really early with folks because most people aren't thinking about redesigning schools. So we've got to do early pipeline work Mm -hmm. to make sure – most importantly, we're equitable because a lot of times the people that have had access to these uh, opportunities previously are people that come from privilege. And we want to make sure yeah. we're keeping it open to women and people of color. So we have goals around equity. But we have to, in order to do that, we've got to plan really early. Um, we also make sure that we're, like I mentioned, we're focusing with the community. And it's not like a helicopter in strategy for launching a school. And then mm-hmm. third, and we're making sure that we are uh, really investing in talented instructional leaders, right? We don't, we want folks that have been, had experience and not just uh, someone that had taught for two years and, and tried to go launch a school. Yeah. Yeah. Which is hard. Which is really hard. It's really hard work. It's really hard work. <laughs> yeah. It's because amazing work. It's so fulfilling. And when you get to see these schools get off the ground, you, you see all that hard work that actually the efforts just start because then you're going to actually start teaching kids. But to think it takes like three years to even get to the point where you can 
start serving students is crazy. I mean, you have to be a there's a different there's a, a really resolute dedication in a person if they are going to stick something out for three years with absolutely no outcomes for those three years. Like mm-hmm. in terms of like student output, because you have no students, you don't have a staff. It's just you, just you. and us. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what, what? this is the reason why I think incubator programs are so important. Like Jen has been coaching our fellows this year and has done an amazing job. <laughs> and they, they'll they tell you that they needed her because they'll get stuck and um, they, they need someone to bounce ideas off of. But it, since we're funding their – we fund their salaries for the year because they need we, – we don't expect people to be independently wealthy. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'll just take a year off to do this. No and big have, deal. Yeah. But then you need someone to be able to help uh, think through things with you and brainstorm and strategize and say, okay, which curriculum is best if I'm really trying to focus on a feminist curricula? Yeah, I know, which is a perfect segue because we talked a little bit about how um, some of the ideas that people incubate are born out of frustrations with things they've experienced yeah. either in the system or around the system. Um, and Typically, when we talk about equity, when we talk about in- inequity, when we talk about um, frustrations, we're, we're really talking about what is really applicable to students and families, like families not having access to high quality schools or students of color being disproportionately disciplined. Um, so those are like what we've talked a lot about on miseducation. But your experiences have like uncovered a different layer of equity issues, right? Yeah. <laughs> so let me tell you. <laughs> it's about to get real. It's Here, about to get real. More wine in your <laughs> wine glass. Um, being a woman of color, I feel like, is being at the bottom of the ladder. You Man, I, you know what? Okay, I, I'm going to let you finish. But we were in a meeting the other day, and we were talking about being women of color. And somebody said, I feel like I am actually an invisible person sometimes when I enter a room. One, because I'm in a room full of males. And two, because I am a person of color. And so you just, there's not, there's a, no winning. There's not a lot of space to say there's no winning. And when she said it, I was like, man. I totally feel you because I have this is subtle. And that's the thing about it is so many things are so subtle that you start to think like I'm just being sensitive or I think I'm misreading that situation. But there have been thousands of times where people, men that have been my, they don't even remember my name. They get it wrong every time I've seen them. They have said my name wrong. And I'm like, it's not that Jennifer. Is a very common name. <laughs> yeah. Like, Try Sook. That Try my I full mean, name, which is Sook Beep. <laughs> Anybody wants a funny video, go watch Russell Peters making fun of names. <laughs> and uh, cultural names, I think is what it's called. You're going to kick out of it. I do. I just resonated with her because I was like, no, I get it. You know, I don't show up enough, I guess, in, in their own mind to be memorable. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah, so what's craziest to me is when I was in schools, I didn't notice it. Because when you go to a school building, if you look around, majority of the people, at least in classrooms, that are leading classrooms are women. Mm-hmm. And ideally, mm-hmm. if we're doing the system right, there are women that look like the people that we're trying to serve or people of color. 
But then as you slowly start to ascend, yeah, then you notice, wait, where are the women going? They're slowly decreasing in percentages Mm -hmm. to the point where nationally there's only about 18% of women who are superintendents. When the majority- In the nation? In the nation. In the entire nation, Uh 18% of the superintendents are women. Uh As of 2018, which is the study I just read. And and yet, majority of teachers in classrooms are women. So what is happening? Why are we not supporting our women to actually get to the highest levels of power in making decisions within a district? And the same is true for school board members. And inversely, why are there not more men teachers? Exactly. If you're getting to if you're getting to be superintendents, why isn't there a higher percentage of males that are actually in classrooms? Which we know is also very important. For, it especially is very for, important, especially for kids of color, especially for. Uh, students from low-income communities. So I I noticed that mostly when I left the school building. I left the school building and I came to CEP and I was often, I walked into a room and I said, wow, I'm the only woman and generally the only person of color in the room. And I felt like I had to be different. Yeah. I had to make my voice louder. I had to constantly justify what I was saying and just to to make it valid. Mm-hmm. Um and, and that was really tough, and especially when folks that are in the room are maybe a lot older than you and uh, come from a different background mm-hmm. where they are privileged, and they just feel like they can say things to you that they may not think is actually demeaning, but really is. Uh, you know, comments about the way you look. or Oh, totally. And that never Somebody helps. told me one time, a long time ago, not in my recent work history, but a long time ago, uh, one of my supervisors, who was also male, was like, whatever you're doing, whatever – however you fixed up your wardrobe or like, you should just keep doing that. And I was like, you would, you would, he would never say something like that to one of my male counterparts. And sometimes they think they're being affectionate. Or complimentary. Or complimentary. Like, don't take this the wrong way. We we love that pretty smile of yours. It's so nice to see you around. Which is like, great, but do you love my brain? Because it's pretty (laughs) badass too. Exactly. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> so, and interestingly, it continues to come up in every single space I've been in. You know, I, I was I was fortunate enough to be in LSA last year, and we were in places where I hadn't had the opportunity to be in, meeting with politicians and elected officials. And I had multiple elected officials ignore me at a table once, not even asked to shake my hand because they were worried about how they would pronounce my name mm-hmm. and and not look at me while, during the conversation or address my questions. And mm-hmm. It's subliminal or they think it's subliminal, but it's really affecting the person who's sitting there. And you just don't feel like you have a voice at the table. And then we've continued to see it even with our fellowships. Like we've done a really good yeah. job of trying to be equitable in who we're bringing on. And yet the people that are authorizing them or the people in power are still just speaking of them as if they are inexperienced or don't have the right experience. Yes. Or they couldn't handle all of the right. work. That it's just too, too much heavy of a load for and they're just worried. It's like the pobrecita it mindset that Patty like, Radel always talks about. But with you women. You know what it is? Yes. And it's also like, it's my job to protect you from this burden. Mm-hmm. But if I am signing up for the burden, I don't need you to intervene on my behalf. Don't try to carry it for me when I said I would do it. You wouldn't. I just don't think that that would happen if it were the other way around. 
you wouldn't see a woman saying, oh, I need to protect you from what right, you're like, about to experience. Oh, you don't know how hard this is going to be. So let me step in front of you and shelter you from this incredibly difficult task that you really don't understand how much you're asking to take on. Yeah. That blows my mind. It's and crazy. it makes me crazy. Yeah. And so I don't know what the future lies for us, but I do know that San Antonio has a lot of work to do around gender discrimination and making sure that we are equitably treating men and women so that they everyone has an equal voice at the table and an equal access to making change or cre- being the change makers, which is not currently the case. I'm so glad to see our city council now. I know. It, we, are, we are shifting that way for sure. And that's mm-hmm. because Latinas and pe- women of color are actually fighting the fight. And, you know, we have organizations like Latina Leadership Institute. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we, we are pushing that way, which I think is great. I do too. I always get nervous when people start talking about running for office because I'm like, Never in my life have I ever had the ambition to do anything remotely close to that. But there's a certain amount of righteous anger that wells up that makes you say, like, I don't care what my ambition was. This is just not okay. So if I have to step outside my comfort zone to do something that shows up somewhere, then I guess then what are we left to do? I mean, I absolutely agree. And I've been thinking a lot about, like, how do we create the biggest change for women in education and the women's biggest change for women in the city? I mean, you know, we have networks, we have support mm-hmm. systems, but we also know that kids can't be what they can't see, right? So if you don't see a woman in power, a yeah, woman as totally. president, you won't be able to believe or dream that you can be a woman as president. Um, it, it, the U.S. women's soccer team is like a yeah. perfect example yes. of this last year. I'm a huge sports fan. And so <laughs> I love their commercial of I believe. You're more than a fan. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I would never. That that term does not do it justice. <laughs> so shout out to She Unit, which is our all-female football squad in San Antonio. We actually call ourselves La She Unit now because we are the She it. Unit. And our, uh, our logo is pretty San Antonio-based as well. But, yeah, we play. Uh, football in San Antonio Sports and Social Club and play competitively across the state and we're all-female squad. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Anywho, so we we have to think more about who we are being rather Mm -hmm. than just what we are doing. And so if we need to be people that folks can look up to and little girls can say, oh, yeah, I can be president one day. Yeah, for sure. This is a big issue for me. And it always – it's not that it always – It hasn't always been a big issue for me, but it's especially, I do feel it especially so maybe it's because I'm in my middle age years now that I am like, what the hell? Where are all the people? Where are all my people? Yeah. Like we all started out in one place and there were a lot of us. And now I'm like, where are, where are my people around me? I live in a city where the minority is the majority, but we're not. The ones controlling a lot of what's happening, especially now because I've I am a mom again to a little girl, it makes me even more aware. And my boys are old enough to like be dating people, which is, I mean, like in the fake sense of dating, <laughs> not like dating dating, <laughs> but like they're teenagers. They're, so so it also is you know I watched the to I listened to what they're saying about the kinds of people they are interested in. And it makes me, it makes me pause and say like, what have I shown them? Where are they headed? And like, how am I going to, how am I going to set an example for 
Elise later when she when she comes up against like, you know, she's really she's really aware of <laughs> supposed to be wearing skirts. Like, mommy, I'm supposed to wear a skirt. Why? Why? I don't understand. Who told you that? <laughs> like, what are you? That just it's highlighted for me now where I'm like, who, why, who told you that you're supposed to do anything? Yeah. Or she'll say like, I don't want that one. It's blue. Blue is for boys. And I'm like, who is, who, how is this happening? Because it's not coming from me. So where is it coming from? These little gender stereotypes that I'm just more cognizant of because I'm older now or because I'm a mom now. I don't know. It's just it's societal, on my radar It's like all societal indoctrination, right? Like if if a girl plays sports, oh, she must be interested in other girls because right, there's no exactly. other reason it's, why she could be an athlete. Um, there are these mindsets that we have that we have to work really hard to break. And until we actually have people that are actively breaking them or trying to break the glass, yeah, we there, it's going to continue on for generations. We don't want that for our kids. No, I don't want that for anybody. I don't want that for me. Me either. I don't want to be told I can't do something. This is so. I want to choose not to do stuff. For sure. You know, someone told me that the more as men get older and get wiser and get greater degrees and more money, they become more, um, more exciting for girls. Like they become more appealing. Uh And as girls or as women get older and get more degrees and get more, have more professional accreditations and more money, they become less appealing for men because it's like a power struggle, which is crazy. But that is, yeah. <laughs> not good. Not good. <laughs> for me. Men. men. <laughs> Come on. Who needs them? Come on. <laughs> I, just, I just got through reading the book uh, Becoming by Michelle Obama. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh! It, it she is my hero. Uh, I want to read that. I haven't read it yet. It's amazing, and she was just as capable of as attorney as Barack was. She was super Dude. qualified. She did so many She'll great things. Be my president. I know for sure. <laughs> for real, yes. I love it. Instead of he, she will always be my president. For real, because she she did so many great things in, in using just her position as first lady when she could have easily just said, oh, I'm just going to be a socialite. But she and everything she did in her life, people discredited saying, oh, they she only got there because of who she was married to. But no, that was out of her own credibility. Mm-hmm. And it takes a real humble human to know that, even, that that's what's being said. But I'm still going to work really hard to change outcomes for kids and for the healthcare industry. But that's what I meant when I said earlier, like. I do think women run the world, even yeah. if it is behind mm-hmm. the scenes, and that I'm glad there are people who aren't okay with that and are coming forward and saying, no, we're not only – it's not going to be behind the scenes anymore. Like, yeah. I'm going to take my place right here yeah. alongside all of these other people who are yeah. doing this work. But I'm also – I also recognize that there are many women who say, "I, you know what, I know the effect I can – have right where I am, regardless of the limelight or what other people are, what other people's assumptions of my work might be. It's so funny that you say that because I do vision boards every year. And um, on my vision board from last year was it's not about the position. It's It's about it's about what you do with the position and how you are a leader just from where you are sitting. Just where you are. Mm -hmm. Just where you are, because there are a lot of us. Yeah, there are a lot of us doing really cool shit right where we are. Mm-hmm. I always say, like, I'm. I feel. I feel very blessed to have been born 
a woman. <laughs> I just, I do. Like, I, I mean, certainly there are things that are harder, but I also think like we are, we are the organizers and the nurturers. A lot of times we're also the nurturers. Yep. Um, and, and we have the good ideas. <laughs> We have all the good ideas. And, you know, research says that leadership that women have, like the leadership that's innate within women is actually more effective and more transformational than men men leading. I agree. (laughs) I'm just going to own that. I think that's right. That's sound research. It is. I I don't know where it came from, but it is sound. It's right on point. (laughs) I'm getting a doctorate, so I can say, just listen to the doctor. Almost in May, I'll be done. Right around the corner. I'm right around the corner. I'll be done. Which I wonder what that statistic is. Yeah, for the amount of women that have doctorates. Uh I mean, it's got to be low. Even women of color that have doctorates. I mean, I love my program, and I'm not going to call them out, but there are very few people of color in that program. Really? It, I mean, a lot of it also has to do with, like, when you go to a a, uni- a pub- private university, it's just unaffordable. Well, yeah. And yeah. you don't get – by the time you're in a doctorate program, there's, there's not no a lot more, of financial help. No, no. No one supports that. And and then for us in education, it's not like our salaries are going to increase by a lot. So, yeah. you know, I – You're doing it because you love it. <laughs> I know. And I, like, calculated the art because, you know me, I'm, like, a numbers person. So I calculated the ROI on my investment <laughs> when I started. And I was like, this is a terrible investment <laughs> in terms of money. By the time you're 73. <laughs> you may have made back, like, 25% of your investment. Oh, man. No, it's crazy. The ROI is really low on getting a doctorate, especially in education. But, you know, you do it for the love. And it's actually been a really good experience. I've met a lot of great people and built a great network of folks around the country doing the work and really learned different perspectives because I've been in Texas my whole career. And so this is the perspective that I have. Yeah. And that's really important to you. Like going other places, being where other people are is really important. I've learned that, I would say, this year as well because we've gone lots of places. Mm -hmm. But I've also – I think, you know, I learned that lesson maybe the first time professionally when I stopped being a teacher because then you're like not just in your classroom and you're in everybody else's classroom. And you once you see other people's way of being – you, your perspective shifts, and yeah. then you're like, okay, well, I kind of get that now, whatever that is. So going to – I learned that a second time when I stopped being a campus principal full-time, and I was doing interim principaling. So I was seven different schools in one year, and you also are like, wow, okay, every school is really unique, very so, unique. It's it's like a little micro-ecosystem that's – not like any other micro ecosystem. And now I think like this is what people actually need to know and experience in order to understand each other better and be less competitive and more cooperative. Sure. I I've never been a very firmly rooted in binary systems to begin with. I just think like how could there only be one right way to do anything? No. I just we're all so different. So how could we? How could there be one right way? I don't think that that exists. Um, but going and seeing other places, then you really are like, well, that worked for them, yeah. you know. And it's that's not you're not biased toward this is the right. This is the way things should be happening. There's yeah. not a should be. There's no. It's should. just there's no should. There's Tracy not a Goss should be. Should be says there's no way things should be. Really? <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. There's. I mean. 
Although I would say I get caught up in like that should never have happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah. can get kind of preachy about it. <laughs> so I would say that's a I'm practicing there is no should be. Mm-hmm. I do think like sometimes I'm like that that should not have happened that way. Yeah. 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 This is fun. We could keep going forever. <laughs> What did we not, if you had a magic wand, like if you could just like, I'm going to change this and you just wave your magic wand and it's different. (laughs) What's the thing? Lingardium leviosa. (laughs) Um, What's the thing? What is it? (laughs) So the thing that I'll say. (laughs) The safe. (laughs) The safe thing that I'll say really is that. I think, like, to your point that you just made, every school is absolutely different. The kids in the school building, the community that they're serving is different. And so we can't create one solution for every school. And that's kind of why I believe the first thing I would change is restructuring our system to make sure that schools can make every single decision at their campus level. That regardless of whether it's curriculum, whether it's staffing, whether it's what they're who they're partnering with in their neighborhood, what wraparound services they're offering, whether it's a dual language program, whatever anything has to do with the school, that it is made at the school level with all the stakeholders stakeholders involved. I get that that people will argue that that's not really financially feasible or sustainable, but I, but if it's magic, it's magic. It's magic. So that's true. I don't have to think about anything else. You don't have else. to think about anything else. If, like that, if, that's if, the magic. That's the magic, if, right? If I could wave the magic wand, I would say communities build schools in partnership with educators who are passionate about serving their kids. And together, there is a beautiful model that's developed on the ground that only they control. And they get to serve who all the kids that they can serve within their community and mm-hmm. folks that want to come in and experience that community as well. Yes. Which means there's an intense amount of trust for that leader or in that leader because complete autonomy can be reckless, too, if the person isn't going to use it wisely. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But when your leader's coming from your community and when it's actually a partnership versus just a service-type orientation for mm -hmm. others, but ownership of that, these are my kids just as much as their parents think that these are my kids and it's it can be really powerful and it used to be done right we there's this amazing group i read about in mississippi um, called the mississippi child development group that when head start first came out they decided that these group of women these women of color from mississippi were going to start their own head start program and it was amazing because it gave women jobs and it taught their kids and they were federally funded and the federal government got rid of it because they said that they weren't doing right by kids But really, that was all a hoax because they wanted to take power away from the community. Mm -hmm. So, like, if we give power back to the people that really want to serve their own, that's what I think is actually going to bring entire communities out of the cycle of poverty. You know, your notion of um, the series or this season— Is that it's not just schools, right? Yeah. And so I, it's that what's wrong with our communities or our city or our state or our national, our nation, that it's not, that all doesn't take root in a school building. No. No. But we kind of act like it does. Yeah. Like we act like 
everything is falling to shambles because kids are unprepared to enter into the real world because schools are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. No. And my pushback on that is always like we're one slice of the pie. But, you know, you if you if you take a step back and you think like even somebody who has access to all of the best teachers, leaders and academics, but doesn't have great health care or doesn't have enough food or doesn't sleep enough at night, they're still not going to be the best prepared person to enter into any kind of work environment. I absolutely agree. And I always say schools can be the unit of change. They can. But at the same time, we have to keep that in consideration with all the other things that Mm -hmm. one needs to be successful. San Antonio did not become the most economically segregated city because its schools were failing. Our schools are failing because it is the most economically segregated city in the country. And so we have to be able to figure out a way to solve that problem. Like food deserts on the west side, right, are a huge, huge reason why 78207 is so poverty And it's not easy. Like it's not an easy task because it's been so long that people have a real root in their communities. And so it's a careful balance between dismantling segregation and encouraging gentrification, right? Like it's a, that's a, that is a fine, delicate uh, balance, you know, to prevent displacement while bringing in economic development. It's hard. These are not hard. These are not easy things. These are not quick fixes. These are not. And a school leader and school teachers, they can't they can't lead the front on all of those things. Right. Not alone. Not definitely not alone. And it doesn't help when resources are tied just to the community, just to property taxes. Right. Why are still we still using a funding formula that ties School school district boundaries, property taxes know. to their facilities. It's the reason why we have the buildings that we do and the resources that are inequitable. But until we change those old systemic problems, we're never going to actually move to a place where we could think about economic development that's done in the right way, where you're rent controlling or you're allowing families that have already lived there great spaces to live while still bringing, right. uh, still bringing economic development to the area. Right. These are, I think what I pre, this is, this is what, um, this is why I think it's so important that we start to create space for just having a conversation, not an argument and not a, a pitch, just, hey, why don't we sit in the same room and you tell me what you're thinking mm-hmm. and I will listen to it and I'm going to hold on to that. And that's it. That's it. That's it. And then over time, I feel like there's a different kind of trust that's established where it's actually a city mindset. It's not a neighborhood mindset. It's not a school mindset. It's not a person or a party mindset. It's actually like how how do we take care of our city? Mm-hmm. And then it kind of like a ripple effect. How does that translate to taking care of our state? How does that translate to taking care of our nation? You know what I mean? Like, yep. But it can't always be about a district mindset or a charter mindset yep, or a neighborhood sure. mindset or like it just everybody just argues over it when it when we're so narrowed. Yeah. Yeah, we gotta definitely think more holistically. Mm-hmm. What are all of all of the people in the community that are doing work in different industries are gonna be needed to be sitting at the table to create long term, systemic, sustainable change. So we just gotta make that happen. 
especially when we all work in silos and are putting out fires slash working towards our key right. performance indicators on a daily basis. <laughs> exactly. Yes. A hundred percent. So how do you do that? You join SALT. SALT. <laughs> you come to CEP's beer storming events. Yeah. Absolutely. You get engaged in what's happening because even though it's hard, like I get it at 5.30 p.m. Yeah. Tuesday when we were doing Beer Storm, we were all tired. Of course. But it's about figuring out a way to make time for what truly matters. And, and meeting other people who also care about what you care about. Come to SALT. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've got lots of great activities coming up. So this is my woo coming out. All right, all right. do it. We've got a great <laughs> spring ahead of us. We've got a new book club. We've got some fun karaoke nights. Yep. We're running in the MLK March, but this probably will come out after that. <laughs> but we will have run. Oh, in yeah, the we will have run in the MLK March. Supporting um, our fun friends mm-hmm. at Young Men's Leadership Academy. Mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. the brother school to where I worked at when I was in HISD. So shout out to Mickey <laughs> Leland. Um, and young women's in Houston. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so we've got lots of fun stuff coming up for SALT. And I want to we... do another school crawl mm-hmm. in the spring. I think school crawl went really well. I think the idea is new. Um, but it was fun to be in other people's spaces. Yeah. If there were any teachers listening, think about the last time you went into a school building that wasn't yours and just got to hang out. Yeah. And just look at their bulletin boards yeah. and, like, get great look at their cafeteria and look at their behavior management system that's posted by their door, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really kind of fun. Yeah, it's like Pinterest but in real life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so be on the lookout for that. We have lots of stuff happening. And then we have some info sessions that we're – and anytime, anytime. So how do people find you? So people can find me uh, on Instagram or Twitter. My handle is at the Sook Life, although I have to say my Twitter is kind of meek. Um, or, you know, reach out to me on the City Education website. CityEducationPartners.org is our website. And we would love to connect, talk more about all the programs that we have to offer, or just get to know each other. You know, we always well, want to meet We're happy people. to come visit your school. Oh, yeah. Like we're, any, all, we're school junkies, school basically. junkies. If any school leaders are out there that are willing to open their doors to fellow school leaders looking to learn, please, please, please reach out because we need to create a culture of collaboration. We're not – and we're just there to get best practices that you've worked your butt off creating. So, And we will brag well. on you too. Oh, yeah, for sure. We will definitely brag on like you. Like we're going to go try to go visiting Jennifer at Box yes, Tech. Yes, we are. Hey, Jen. Hey, and I heard uh, such great things about the campus and how high you guys are performing. So we really want to see what's happening. And last year, locally, we also went to go visit ALA. We went to visit YWLA. So lots of great campuses. That yep. We went to Bowden. Uh huh. We went to Idea. Idea Monterey Park. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are all about school visits. Yeah. Just for fun. Just for fun. We don't really have an agenda. (laughs) I just want to go hang out and see what everybody's doing, so we can appreciate you. Yeah. And celebrate the work that's happening in our city. Because what one thing we know for sure is that teachers and educators are not celebrated as much not as they need to be. Not even a little bit. Yeah, I wrote a, I just wrote a, a paper that's probably not going to get published, but on teachers, teachers as professionals. And, you know, we want teachers to be professionals. We want them to have the autonomy to do great things and, and negotiate yeah. great salaries for themselves because they're doing the hard work. Yep. Yep. So thank you so much for sitting down to talk to me today. Thanks, Jen. I love you. I love you, too. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miseducation.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.